as has already been mentioned, what a glorious and wonderful opportunity it is to come together today to see an audience of interested individuals in the things that God has revealed. We has already have been noted in the announcements a number of who are sick and are not able to be with us, but on the other hand, some who have been are able to be back, and certainly for that circumstance, we are thankful they're able to be back. And may we continue to think very prayerfully about those who are not here with us today. As we come together on occasions such as this one to consider a portion of God's Word, it's always the case that that Word is to be applied and used daily by us. It is not merely stories written a few thousand years ago, but rather it is timeless in the sense that the lessons are truly the active and quickening agent, as the psalmist declared in Psalm 119, verse 93, that we will find life only when quickened by the Word of God. This morning, as we consider a lesson entitled, The Evil of Deceit, we will be reminded of some things in our society that is very saddening, things that are very troubling, things that are very much that which causes us anxiety and anguish. But on the other hand, we will be reminded about how God expects us to be as we consider properly and rightly the matter of deceit. As we do that, may I encourage you to think of some introductory thoughts. Deceit is not a new matter in terms of human culture. It has been around since the Garden of Eden. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 14, we learn there that it was the serpent, the tempter, which deceived the woman but did not deceive the man. And thus, that was the very first instance in which the first human pair was involved in a matter related to deceit. Thus, we ought not think that this is merely a 19th or 20th or 21st century matter, nor is it something that's important now but was not important then. It has ever been a part of the human lot in the matter of the fact of deceit. Today, as we consider some things about it, we will first remind ourselves about the rather black eye that government, that the sports arrangement has recently taken by virtue of deceit. But as we do that, we will, of course, be reminded about what the Bible says about it, the fact that it is important, and the fact that we should use these vital lessons contained in God's Word to help ourselves to properly understand deceit and to avoid it. That being said, may I first ask us to define it and then look at some examples. What do we mean by deceit? What does the Bible mean when it uses that term? First, it would be fair to say this is a very appropriate definition for deceit. Any device, the object of which is to deceive, is that which is deceitful, is that which is involving deception. And in fact, to make the matter even more plain and more direct, it is again any such device that has as its object to cause others to accept as true or valid what is in fact invalid or false. Thus, this matter of deceit, many would say there's a rather dramatic difference between lying on the one hand and deceit on the other. We'll notice that this is merely a veiled kind of lying. Ultimately, we shall find it to be the same. For after all, again, note with me the latter part, something said or done that encourages or leads others to accept something to be true or valid, which is in fact not so. Now, you and I will see as we open the pages of the wonderful Word of God what God has to say about that. 
Might I first ask you to notice that there are many reasons why a person may think that deceitfulness is in fact justified. It could be pride. It may well be greed. For others, perhaps it's jealousy. It might also be, of course, to be stated, it's the desire for popularity and fame. If I can lead them to think that I'm different than what I actually am, then I will look high in their eyes. It'll be of benefit to me, all the while I've been deceitful about it. For others, perhaps it's peer pressure combined with personal weakness. Any of those might well be descriptive of instances that you and I may have known concerning deceit. It would be fair to ask about some examples. What about those characters of whom we read in the Word of God that themselves engaged in deceit? And may we say as we do so, we'll be interested to know how did God respond? Did He find it approving? Did the God of heaven stamp His approval on the actions of those that were deceitful? We shall let the Scriptures answer for themselves. Let's begin in the Old Testament first. In the fifth chapter of 2 Kings, we read there about a rather well-known episode at the outset of that chapter. We may be more apt to forget about, though, what happened near the end of it. The man's name was Naaman. He was afflicted with leprosy and soon came to learn that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal him of that leprosy. When Naaman came, we remember at the outset that he wasn't excited about the protocol that was encouraged by Elisha. In fact, he said, why didn't the prophet come out and do some great thing? All he was told to do was you go and dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be healed of your leprosy. Ultimately, Naaman did that which he was bidden to do. And sure enough, after the seventh time, his skin was as clean and as white as could be, having been cleansed of leprosy. But now we come to that part of the story more of interest for our lesson this morning. Elisha had a servant whose name was Gehazi. In terms of thankfulness and gratitude, Naaman had offered Elisha several wonderful gifts because he'd been cleansed from leprosy. But Elisha refused every one of them. He said, I will take nothing from your hand. Gehazi heard, though, about the offer. And after Naaman had returned and began to go to his homeland, Gehazi had the idea that he would go and catch him and take something from him. And that's what he did. He proceeded on his way and caught up with Naaman's party. And when he caught up with him, he told him a very nice-sounding story. My master has sent me because two sons of the prophets from Ephraim have come, and we are in need of some garments and some gifts. And he said, I pray thee, give me a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Naaman, of course, trusted what he said and said, Take two talents. He, in fact, offered more than what Gehazi requested. And in fact, he said, Two of my servants will carry these things back with you. And that's what happened. Two changes of raiments, two talents of silver taken back, and Gehazi put them in the house. After the servants had gone back then to Naaman, Gehazi came in before Elisha. And Elisha said, Where art thou, or whence camest thou, Gehazi? In the language of you and me today, he'd say, Where were you? Where have you been? And Gehazi said, Thy servant went nowhere. Gehazi didn't tell Elisha where he'd been. For he knew that such a thing was not approved. He was deceitful in the matter. How did Elisha, how did God respond? In the very last verse of that chapter, we find Elisha saying, Went not my spirit with thee, Gehazi? 
Finally, he said, The leprosy that was taken from Naaman shall rest upon thee and upon thy family forever. We notice that deception didn't pay. Being deceitful did not pay. Here was a man, perhaps out of greed, out of the great interest of what had gleamed in his eye when he thought about what that man Naaman was able to offer, and he wanted that, and he deceitfully found a way to get it. I wonder, in the aftermath, was it worth it to Gehazi? Do you suppose he would gladly have turned it back if he could have gotten rid of that leprosy? I suspect so. What about another example? This one in the New Testament. In the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, one of the first interesting and very powerful negative episodes in the life of the church, we remember Ananias and Sapphira who had sold a parcel of land, brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. And that at this point sounds incredibly noble and incredibly powerful in terms of accomplishing the work and will of God. However, we remember Peter directly accused Ananias of lying. You, in fact, have been deceitful in that you've brought this money. You have insinuated or at least given the impression that it's all of the price that was to be obtained by virtue of the sale of that land. However, in verse 4, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. When given the opportunity to spell the truth or to make the statements that were true, Ananias refused and he died on the spot. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira came in. We remember that she too was given the opportunity to state the truth of the matter and she too maintained the deception that had been concocted by she and her husband. One more time, Peter said, convicting her of the error of her way and she too died on the spot. Deception. We notice yet again, this time, was it because of their desire to be looked highly by the community that they gave all of this money and all of these things for the occurrence and the establishment and the extenuation of the church? Again, it did not pay. They died because of their deception. To say all of those things is to say that there are many other examples that might be listed from our modern day. I've begun the list with a whole host of them from the world of sports. You've probably noticed on the news, as has have I, that you kind of get very tired of hearing it. But nonetheless, this is the current lot in which we are. Consider, first of all, in the NBA, one of the referees who refereed many of the games was found to be betting on the very games, and often perhaps he made calls that directed the outcomes of those games. He gave the impression of being fair and right and choosing to make the calls of the game when in fact he may not have been. He was, deceptive. he was deceptive. Or what about Major League Baseball? We again perhaps appreciate that the steroid scandal that's hanging over Major League Baseball is certainly a looming cloud. Some of the most well-known names in the entirety of it will not admit that they never took steroids and in fact many have now admitted that they did. Such men as now Barry Bonds, who's the home run king, Rafael Palmero, as well as others that you could name. It again is such that they were playing the game in competitiveness when all the while they were not obeying the rules and were thus unfair in their competition. They were being deceptive. In the National Football League, football, the New England Patriots were caught not many months back now actively engaged in that which was illegal filming the opposing team in terms of the signals that they sent. Patriots were punished dramatically because of it. 
The quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, as you perhaps have heard on the news, has now been accused, not only accused, but found to be guilty of running a dogfighting ring. He has been removed from the NFL for it. You could list many other examples, too. The NCAA frequently has to punish various collegiate teams because of their violation or infractions of various rules, be it in recruiting or be it in the actual scholarship arena. Two others in which we often have also seen it. What about cycling? The Tour de France is by far the most famous cycling race in the world, and yet the man who won it last year, he has been stripped of his title because during the course of the race, he was tested positive for drugs or performance-enhancing substances that were not considered legal, stripped of his title. Or what about Marion Jones, the track and field star who some seven years ago in the 2000 Olympics won five medals, three of them gold, two of them bronze, and she's now been stripped of all of them. She admitted that she took steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs. Deceitfulness. Over and again, all of these have given the impression that they competed fairly when in fact they didn't. They lied to all those who watched them. They lied to all who in fact were so excited about the fairness of that which took place. Even our government is not exempt. Larry Craig, the congressman from the state of Idaho, not many days ago now, not only was found but admitted in terms of a sex scandal, it seems as though the list is extended to the point that we've said enough about all that. Could we summarize some of what we've seen, though, concerning those matters? I think it's fair to perhaps write in this way. All of these were cheating. They lied. They deceived countless thousands who trusted in them and, in fact, who appreciated the fact, or so they thought, that the government or the sports athletes were competing fairly in accordance to the rules. However, we've now found that they lied to us. They were involved in deception. And quite often when they first came to be accused, they denied it. That was true, for instance, of Marion Jones. For six years, she's denied ever taking performance-enhancing drugs, and now she's admitted it. So in terms of deception, she has also lied. The matter of this deception leads to the final four statements there. These have disgraced their sports, they've disgraced their country, they've disgraced themselves, and they've disgraced their family. They've given a black eye to the sport that they perhaps have so often loved. They've placed a blooming cloud of deception and, in fact, difficulty in terms of many of these sports. I wonder what God has to say about these things. When I first began to think about the character of this lesson, I thought about a statement maybe you've heard too. Something to the effect that cheaters never win and winners never cheat. It would seem that these who, though they were considered to be winners, have certainly come now to the point that they are far from that. Can we not say that nowhere in the Bible does that verbatim statement appear, but its premise is found everywhere? all throughout the Testaments, both old and new. And in that sense, let us look at some passages, beginning now, that will help us appreciate the thoroughness and power of what God has to say about this. Let's begin in the Old Testament. In the 19th chapter of Leviticus, in the very heart and core of the givenness of the law of Moses, God had something to say about equity and fairness and the evil of deceit. 
in verses 35 and 36, God declared, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meat yard, in weight, or in measure. Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen shall ye have. Perhaps a little bit of extension of history. In that ancient day when you were involved in trading or you'd go to the marketplace to buy the wheat or the other things that you'd use for your family, that was, of course, distributed not in five-pound sacks or two-pound sacks like we go to a grocery store today. It was there available, and there would be a balance or a scale, and you simply would buy from the man a given amount. He'd weigh it out for you and sell it to you. Notice that God says here, and according to the Hebrew, the language actually means this, there is to be no injustice in any measure related to either weight or volume. You're to sell them exactly what you claim to be selling them. That's the whole thrust of that word just as it relates to balances and weight. After all, as the seller, suppose you, in terms of selling a given amount, put a weight on there that measured out differently than what the person thought he or she was buying. In essence, you charge them for a given amount but sell them less. You're cheating them. You're deceiving them. On the other hand, what if you were buying it from the one providing it to you? That is, you are the person providing it from your crop. Well, there he'd probably adjust it the other way. He would want to buy it from you in such a way that he's getting more for lesser price. Either way, if the balance is unjust, God said that is wrong. That is not to take place. You're to have a just balance, a just weight, a just ephah, and a just hen. By the way, the ephah was related to what we'd call a bushel. When you bought a bushel of something, it was to be a bushel, not less. Furthermore, the hen was a measure of volume. If you buy a gallon of something, it's supposed to be a gallon. You're not to be cheating, and as you're the one that's selling it, you're not to cheat or deceive those that are buying from you. Notice also in Deuteronomy 25, verses 13 to 15, where God readdresses this point and even extends it just a bit. Thou shalt not have in thy bag divers weights a great and a small. Thou shalt not have in thine house divers measures a great and a small, but thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just shalt thou measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. These things so far are thus such that deceit in terms of business transactions was absolutely evil and wrong. And not only that, might we notice the language later in the Old Testament even strengthens it. It is called an absolute abomination in the sight of God. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 1, Proverbs 20 verses 10 and 23, all three state the character of that abominable activity. It certainly would be easy then to say that so far, in terms of this, we may summarize at least briefly, that this is a dearth to society. When it comes to the point that the buyer cannot have confidence and trust that what he's buying is legitimately what it's supposed to be, the very fabric of society has been taken away. It's been rotted, corrupted, and eaten away. Notice that God said that thou mayest dwell long in the land which thy father giveth thee. If Israel was to thus dwell, 
productively, efficiently, and happily in the land of Cain, and they needed to abide by the fact of justness and equity in their business dealings. We know all too well today that some have forgotten that idea. Often in business, we again hear about deceitfulness, things that are not what they appear to be. Notice also that lying is stated to be categorically wrong in the Old Testament as well. And that's a necessary accompaniment to deceitfulness, isn't it? Consider texts such as Exodus 20, verse 16. This is the ninth of the Ten Commandments. Let us revisit that briefly. We're familiar with it stated in the form of, Thou shalt not bear false witness. However, the Hebrew language is perhaps a bit stronger when it in fact says, Thou shalt do no deceitfulness. They were not to deceive one another. That was the fundamental ingredient of the kind of society that God approved. What's more, in Psalm 58 verse 3, it is there stated that the wicked are those that lie. And in Psalm 62 verse 4, they rise up early to in fact engage in that which God disapproves, namely lying. Later in Isaiah 59 verse 4, we learn that these very ones whom God described that were rebellious to Him, one of the things of which they were guilty was lying. To then discuss lying or deceitfulness in that kind of way leads us to be able to say that God desired there to be truthfulness. That which was stated, that which was done, was to not be deceitful. It was not to give the wrong impression. It was to be truthful, right, noble, honest, and just. Perhaps one final character to note, that those who thus were deceptive and those who were guilty of lying had a disregard for truth. They had turned their back upon it, rebelled against it. The Old Testament has so far shown us a rather strong statement of God's condemnation of both lying and deceitfulness. May we ask about the New Testament? Are those, is the language any different? Would you come with me and let us look easily at some of the things seen here? May we begin by asking about the condition of the heart. In Matthew 5 verse 8, Jesus, amongst the Beatitudes, made the statement that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. May we ask, who is it then that will see God? It's the pure in heart. Who is it then that stands approved and pleasing before Him? It's the pure in heart. What then about those who are engaged in deception, who live one way but give the impression of another? That heart isn't pure. Those hands aren't clean. Psalm 24, verses 1 to 3. Could we thus also say in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12 in recollection of what Paul, that grand apostle, told that young protege of his, Timothy? He said, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in purity. Notice as he made mention of purity, Timothy was to have a life in which he set forth the idea and the concept of pure living. That is to say, one does what he says and he says what he does. It is a fair thing to note that later Paul would even say to Timothy, keep thyself pure. 1 Timothy 5 verse 22. To say statements like that remind us that we thus too need to live lives of purity in which we don't mislead others by what we say or do things that purposely insinuate things that are either invalid or untrue. 
deceitfulness appears already to not be favorable in the New Testament either. But let us look more carefully. We understand very well that lying is condemned as strongly in the New Testament as it is in the Old. What was it that Paul stated in Ephesians 4.25? He said, in fact, in condemning lying, to, for every man to speak truth with his neighbor. That's a direct quote of Zechariah 8.16. We are thus to speak truthfulness and we are to put away lying. Isn't that what Paul commanded in Colossians 3 verse 9? To put away every man lying and as if we had forgotten or missed it. The very last page of the Bible reminds us again. In Revelation 22:15, among those that will not inherit heaven, who is included in that list? Well, there's whoremongers and sorcerers and others, but what about the last element? Those who love and make lies. Thus, liars will not find a place amongst the glorious halls of heaven. Those who are engaged in untruth and those who are deceptive by the way that they conduct themselves, God doesn't like untruth. Notice perhaps one final thing. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 6, a rather dramatic statement about defrauding one another. In that very noble text, Paul reminded the brethren in Thessalonica to not go beyond or transgress and that no man should defraud any other in any matter. That word defraud, of course, relates rather directly to deception, to engage in behavior in such a way that others are defrauded or deceived or beguiled thereby. The Thessalonians were told that that was not to happen. That is to say, their lives were opposed to that kind of behavior. Thus, is our life to be any different today? We have seen these scandals that I've listed from the world of sports and the world of government. And maybe you or I can consider that seems far removed from us. But you and I are also tempted rather often to deceive, to give appearances and perceptions of things that really aren't true. May we understand that those are condemned by what we've studied so far today. And some other texts will relate more carefully to them. Let us make some general remarks that are intended to summarize these thoughts and perhaps extend them just a bit in our mind. First, it would seem that there is a high objective of maintaining a good name. In Proverbs 22 verse 1, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches in loving favor than wisdom. We see the high position, the great, great price of a good name. We might now ask, what about these athletes whose good name has been tarnished? These senators and representatives whose good name has now been dragged through the mud because of their own actions, do they still have a good name? It isn't so. Those who in baseball, for example, there now will be asterisks beside their names in the record books because they didn't compete fairly. Can Barry Bonds legitimately said to be the home run king because some of his home runs were hit while he was taking performance enhancing drugs? He will not be ranked the same way that Hank Aaron was. He won't be considered the same way that Mickey Mantle or others were. It's a sad thing to consider to have to give back medals and honors and prizes that you have gotten deceitfully. Oh, how we should cherish a good name. 
a name that others can look upon and appreciate that never has there been any associated evil or deception. What that person says is what is the truth. He says or she says what he or she means, and they mean what they say. That's the idea that's intended in the Holy Scriptures, isn't it? Is it not also fair to say that it's wrong thus to be deceptive? to deceive others into thinking or believing something that we know is not that way. Maybe one other comment in terms of remarks. We notice that this deceit that, we've, that we have studied, Gehazi was deceptive. He had first, of course, lied to Naaman. He lied, of course, to Elisha. And all the while he deceived the whole way, we notice he was condemned for it. We noticed Ananias and Sapphira died for their actions. As we've mentioned deceit, though, there seems to me to be a very strong linkage, a correlation that we should not overlook. Who is the father of deception? Who is the one that originates it? We know that Jesus, of course, stated in John 8, that the devil is the father of liars. But let's look and see how closely that deceit and lying are linked together. In Revelation 12, verse 9, the devil is said to be the deceiver of the whole world. And in fact, later in that book, he's described in a very similar way again. In Revelation 20, verse 10, in fact, he is said there that right at the time he is cast into the lake, burning with fire and brimstone, that he was again the deceiver of the whole world. Now, question, where do we first notice his deception? We go back, of course, to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and following, let us retrace briefly what it was that Satan said and what he did not say. God had previously stated that, Thou shalt not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. God's statements were direct and to the point. Satan, though, in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, begins by noting that he's the subtle serpent, more subtle than any beast of the field. And yet he comes before Eve and said, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? He first begins by asking about the nature of what God had said. And Eve rather correctly affirms exactly what God had said. They were not to eat it, nor were they to touch it. It's first now we see his major lie. Ye shall not surely die. He added a word, and of course that changed everything, and so he starts by lying. Now let's see what else he does. After presenting Eve with the lie, he goes on to say, asking her to look at it, how good it looked for food, how good it looked to the eye. And then he topped it off with the pride of life. By partaking of this, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. May we ask, was he deceitful in that latter statement? It is true after partaking of the forbidden fruit. They did know that they were naked. They knew they had transgressed God's law. What Satan didn't tell them, though, was that the degree of that knowledge would be far different than what they anticipated. They were not going to be as God himself, which is the intimation, the impression he gave. We learned something there in his deceitfulness. He had not dispelled the entirety of the truth and thus had led them to believe something that was not true. Notice that God condemned him for it. In terms of the serpent, upon his belly he'd go all the days of his life eating dust thereof. 
to the man, of course, he would work by the sweat of his face. To the woman, increased the travail and childbearing. And furthermore, verse 16, that her husband would rule over her. All the while, we notice that the deception and the lying present there were from the devil. And it is not any different today. Perhaps yet another remark to appreciate. There are times that it seems that deceit may be sweet, and it might be funny, and it might be cute. And it might be that which brings a laugh or perhaps a nice smile. Especially in terms of a friends, when one can deceive another, sometimes that looks to be funny. May we notice in Proverbs chapter 20 an interesting statement to that end. Proverbs 20 verse 17 makes this statement. Bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. As I listen to that, I think again about these individuals whom we've listed so far today. Deceit may have seemed sweet at the time to them. I have these medals. I have this noble admiration from a country of people. But now, what's their mouth full of? It isn't sweetness any longer. It's gravel. It's filled with that which is no longer favorable. That which is no longer appreciative and sweet and pleasant and enjoyable. Oh, how deceit can in fact make one's mouth to be filled with gravel. That leads us perhaps to the final point. And that's the text that we read earlier. As Brother Joy read that from Proverbs 20, verse 14. Would you go back up just to that verse with me? It is not, it is not, saith the buyer, but when he is gone his way, then he boasteth. We notice that here's a situation in which a person's buying something from a seller. And notice that the buyer says, oh, it's not worth anything, it's not worth anything. All the while he knows it is. And then when he goes his way, then he boasts about what it was he got at a price far less than what it was worth. We do see something there about deception, don't we? God notices here that in the course of the man's statement, he was such that, of course, as all of us do, we're interested in a bargain. But might we notice his statements were of a deceitful character. If a man's willing to sell something at what is a bargain price, that's his decision. But for me, as an interested buyer, to openly deceive him by telling him, knowing all the while it's very valuable that it's not worth anything, well, I've deceived him. I have, in fact, stated that which is not the case. I've led him to believe what is not true. Here, Solomon condemns that by the very word of God, doesn't he? And might we notice the other text in Proverbs 6, verse 13, Proverbs 10, verse 10, and Proverbs 20, verse 14 all of which have to do with the same issue. Oh, indeed, how deceit is such an evil thing. We've seen it from both Old and New Testament perspectives. What about a summary conclusion to our lesson this morning as we try to wrap this up and to present it in a way that's fair in light of the Scriptures? All of these positions concerning deception seem to boil over from an ultimate consideration of selfishness, be it greed, be it a desire to have fame and perhaps notoriety in the eyes of others, selfishness. But we've seen in both Old and New Testament that they condemn deceit. It is not that which is pleasing in God's sight because it's not based upon truth. And then finally, may we realize the importance of purity in God's sight, desiring to say and to do those things that are upholders of truth. And then ultimately and finally, 
to never forget the consequences of deceit. Gravel in our mouth. Wouldn't it be awful to stand on the day of judgment and to hear God address you very openly upon opening the books and say, you were involved in deception. You pretended to be what you were not. You were hypocritical. These athletes and these others we've seen, we would at least have to state that once they have found out, they would be wise to admit it, to confess to it, to move on in truth with their life. You and I need to not forget that same lesson, though, that the consequences of deceit are not light. They're very stern and strict. For in fact, they're the same as any other kind of sin. Today, as we then consider ourselves, the only way to remove that is to have the blood of Christ remove it and to be forthright and honest with others whom we know. Are you a Christian then today? Understand that Christ was sent from heaven to come to this low ground of sin and sorrow to provide all of us a means by which we could be freed from sin. You need to believe in Christ. Repent of your sins, confess His great name as Savior, and be baptized. If we could help you do that today, we would certainly be more than excited to do it. And certainly what a great day for you it would be. If you need to come back, though, to your first love, having allowed deception or other activities not approved of God to sneak into your life, make a change at once. Come to the Savior, confess those things to Him, beg, his, beg the character of His forgiveness, and He's promised He'll do that very thing. Today, if we could be of assistance to you, we'd be happy to do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.